Hello, and welcome to the Wind Power Podcast. I'm Ian Griggs, Deputy Editor of Wind Power Monthly, and today I'm speaking to one of the most senior figures working in the wind industry today. Vicar Bate is the Chief Executive of GE Vanova's Onshore Wind Division, as well as the turbine firm's Chief Technology Officer. In this role, he leads on collaboration, innovation, manufacturing and servicing of the company's onshore wind turbine offer. A former CEO of GE's Renewable Energy Division from 2005 to 2013, Abate has been with the company for more than 20 years, and he can trace a line in his career from when wind power was in its infancy through to today's global energy transition. I caught up with him at Wind Europe's recent conference in Copenhagen and asked how President Biden's landmark Inflation Reduction Act will affect the fortunes of GE in the coming decade, how the legislation compares with Europe's proposals, and why the company is cutting the number of turbine variants it offers. Hello, this is Vic Abate, the GE Onshore Wind CEO. It's really good to talk to you, uh, Vic. I'm going to go straight in and ask you to set out GE's vision for onshore wind in Europe, including which markets you intend to focus on and which, if any, you will exit. To talk about our vision and strategy, um, we're a global company, and clearly we're here at the Wind Europe conference, so the European markets are top of mind. But you really got to look at the globe. And I just want to start with the U.S. You know, if you take the U.S. really made a first principle change in the way they're thinking about the energy transition. And the way I describe it from a Biden administration is no longer talk about it, no longer describe it or put scenarios in place. Let's start building it. You look at the Inflation Reduction Act. That's what that is. So as a global company, this has clearly taken a lot of our attention in the last year as the policy we believe is a game changer and is going to double the U.S. market in the next 10 years, that doesn't mean we're less interested in Europe. <laughs> that doesn't mean we're just a, a North American company. But that means when you think of the impact that the U.S. will have as they execute this policy, we have to be front and center there. And last year we were... That's your top market. Yeah, we were over 50% share with installs in the U.S. So for us to really deliver for our customers in that market is key. And here at this conference, there's a lot of European developers that are talking to us about strategies, about expanding their development pipeline in the U.S. as well. It's funny. People will ask me, Vic, are you interested in market A or market B, or where are you going strategically? And when you think about us, we're a technology provider. So our role is to provide the world's best economics, the world's best technology for our customers, and they deploy it in markets where that fit works. Uh, If I told you we were a third of the India market, would you be surprised? If I said we're a third of the Spain market, would you be surprised? We got to partner with our customers, help them be successful in deploying renewables, which is really local. The local challenges in Spain or in Germany or in Australia are different than Texas. And so as a global company, that's where our partnerships matter. So you're following the customers and following their needs in different markets. Exactly. And they're telling us with their pipeline what kind of products they need, what kind of features they need. And that's what we invest in. For us, in markets where we're not competitive, we just have to be honest about that. Trying to be everything everywhere sub-optimizes our true potential. 
And so we're just playing more to our strengths with our customers and partners that we're successful with. And that's playing out quite nicely as the world is expanding the energy transition with wind being in the center of that. What are your European customers telling you that their needs are in these markets? They need quality, predictable, cost-effective technology. The industry has gone through some ups and downs, you know, in particular the U.S. And when you look at prior to the IRA, the reduction in the subsidies, and you could describe it as an industry that was catching a falling knife. Each year you knew the revenue coming into that industry was going to be less. The response to that was a lot of innovation, a lot of change, a lot of potential complexity in the supply chain. And that's resulted in financial challenges for the OEMs. When you look at last year, the key technology providers, they were all underwater. Mm-hmm. And that's just not a viable future. Developers, our customers, suppliers, everybody has acknowledged that. And I think you're seeing a reset going on with a more mature focus around quality. For us to deliver the energy transition, if you take wind 20 years ago, it was about 100 terawatt hours of energy being deployed on the grid globally. And that's up to 1,900 terawatt hours. For the next 20 years, for us to deliver on the energy transition goals, that needs to be 13,000. So the industry has to do six times more in the next 20 years than it did in the last 20. And listen, I have four kids. This is important to me. It's a noble cause, and I think we're on the right side of, of playing this through. But if we plant a half a million wind turbines, you don't decarbonize anything unless they run decade after decade after decade. And we've defined the North Star and GE Vernova as having the world's best running fleet. And so how do we work together to introduce technology in a way that is robust? Not uh, transaction by transaction, but more in a systematic way as we deliver on the energy transition. You said in March that GE had become too complex with a number of different onshore variants that it sells and that you plan to cut rotor and nacelle variants down to four and turbine towers down to nine variants by 2025. Can you give any further detail on which specific variants you'll cut and the timing of these products to be discontinued? I'll just give you an example. In one country in Europe, we had over 40 tower variants. If you're a supplier, every week you're getting a different drawing that's requiring you to change your tool path, that's requiring you to weld it differently. What does that mean to the ability of that supplier to be quality? So I think what was happening, again, in the spirit of trying to innovate, we actually increased the rate of complexity that was not digestible for the global supply chain. And so when I talk to our suppliers about this idea, they thank me. Their job, they see it, is to deliver quality components and products and continue to drive productivity and cost down so that the industry can systematically march forward. We were not allowing them to do that. You may say a blade goes from 140 meters to 143. You need a new mold. Who certifies that mold? Are you going to test that blade on a test rig? That can take nine months, a year. And so if you're introducing products every six months and the testing cycle is a matter of years and every 500 units you make new components, 
you have a 10,000 unit fleet that everything's different and you can't optimize that. Today, our fleet is 55,000 units. We're stepping back and saying, what's our fleet look like when it's 500,000? So if you're gonna have a half a million units, you don't want a half a million different problems. And so our customers actually want that too because their ability to get parts will be cheaper. They want a simple list, right? Exactly. Now don't misinterpret what I'm saying. This doesn't mean you don't innovate. You're just doing it in a much more mature way. When you look at introducing the world's most efficient gas fleet and breaking the 65% barrier, that's technology that's moving forward, but it's done in a very mature way where we understand what we don't know and manage those risks. Do you think that making G a leaner company will make it a more profitable company? It has to be. You know, if you look over the last several years, inflation has hit the world. The costs of renewables have gone up. Energy prices have gone up. The challenges with energy access and with Russia and the dynamics there have really changed everybody's headset. But we can't count on prices going up forever. You've got to just earn your living every day. And how do you continue to drive competitiveness? Clearly, performance is a piece, but cost is another. For us to deliver some of the growth we're seeing in the U.S. just from our tower suppliers, they've got to add a 1,000 jobs. And then you've got to train people. And then you've got to certify their processes. So you just have to enable the whole line of balance of the supply chain and us and our customers who build these projects What we will do with our Gigawatt Club customers and our suppliers is we get together and talk very strategically about how we're positioned and what are the right elements of technology to interject so that we can make improvements but ensure we can deliver on that and minimize the degrees of freedom so everybody isn't in a new era every year of the journey. I want to turn your attention back to Europe, where we are now, and ask you how you think the EU's package of proposals, including the Net Zero Industry Act, will play into G's European onshore strategy generally, and in particular, whether you anticipate creating a larger onshore manufacturing footprint in Europe as a result. Yet to be seen. We have manufacturing presence in Germany. We have a large offshore and onshore footprint in Spain, uh, a lot of engineering jobs and service jobs throughout the various countries. The details and the incentives, sort of the carrot and the stick, as they get more clear, those decisions will be made. I think because the U.S. just passed the IRA, you know, there's only so much capital that you can deploy. And it's clear with a market that's doubling here and now with manufacturing tax credits, if you're going to go deploy a dozen blade molds. Let's try the U.S. (laughs) right uh, now. But there will be chapters of this. And so I do see medium and longer term opportunities in Europe. I was just going to say, is GE broadly encouraged by these policy proposals? You look at the energy transition and you look at managing the future for climate change. And we've done studies that say Every industry's solution is to lean into the electrical sector, right? So the auto manufacturers, you know, zero tailpipe emissions, which means they plug into the grid. So now the grid has to not only get green relative to its current output, but future growth prospects. Hydrogen, same thing. How are you going to get hydrogen? It needs a zero carbon BTU born electron. That requires more renewables. So as we plot this out, there just isn't enough zero carbon born electricity to solve this problem fast enough. So we're all in on growing renewables. 
That said, this is going to be done in a systematic way. And that's why when you say, are you going to grow here? Are you going to grow there? We're going to grow at the pace we can. Okay. You're not going to tell us, presumably, how many more onshore wind jobs you would expect to create in Europe over the coming couple of years. Would you expect them to grow? Broadly speaking, yes. In the near term, no. My view of the industry in the recent past is we've just become too complex. We're doing too many things in too many places. So I'm in a process now of trying to simplify our organization. So we were doing engineering design work in like 20 different locations. Well, the physics are the same anywhere on earth. So I was actually suboptimal. So we were actually restructuring some jobs to put communities of practice, we call them, to ensure we have not only the best designs, but we're learning from the fleet and putting that into our design practice. And if I have people spread out all over the globe, it's harder to do. And so in the near term, part of our turnaround is we're actually removing structural cost from our wind business while it grows. And we're able to do that because we're focused on fewer products, core customers, in core markets, and that will turn us to be profitable quite soon. I'm just curious, actually, as an aside, what's your thoughts in terms of comparing President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act and the EU proposals? Which is the better policy piece as far as GE is concerned? That's an interesting question, especially from where you sit, because that can put me into a bind here. Relative <laughs> to, but to be honest, I hesitate to use what's better. Everything has a context, global and local implications, and you got to run the right play at the right time, you know, with the right policies. It's interesting because I interviewed Sven Utomolen, the chair of Wind Europe. He's actually referred to the Inflation Reduction Act as kind of being better because it's less complex. It's interesting. The, the Europeans are actually looking across to the US and thinking, perhaps you've got the better policy there. It was August, and I just remember our team was uh, part of ACP. They all sort of took a moment of silence when it passed. And their point was, the future's different now. So just to put it in perspective, the production tax credit was 100%, and it was dropping to zero. It was at 80, and then this year it would have been at 60% on its way to zero. It's now at 100% for a decade, and will be longer if we don't meet certain climate goals. And there's another 10% kicker if you buy a domestic turbine. So now it's 110, and then it's another 10% kicker if you put a project in an energy community. So in the Midwest where you have coal plants that are shutting down, if wind plants are going in, you get another 10% kicker. So that subsidy went from 60% on its way to zero to 120. Now, that doesn't come to us, that comes to our customer. So that drives the economics of the project but very clear what that value prop is. In addition to that, if you invest in manufacturing capability in this country for the major components, blades, towers, nacelles, there are manufacturing tax credits. Energy is a national security question. It's a first principle need for society to prosper and to economically grow. The last thing we wanna do in any nation is transition your energy system to a future state that's carbon free and not have the domestic capability that's competitive on a global scale. And so when you put all those pieces together, that's one of the exciting aspects I see about the IRA. And I think in uh, Europe with the policies we're talking about here, 
we can do that too. And so as long as the world is moving collectively, but not vulnerable to energy supply or technologies from elsewhere, I think we're doing right by society. I was just going to say that moment of silence you described in August, you know, perhaps we can now look our kids in the eye and say that we did something. Uh, Finally, Vic, how does operations and maintenance play into GE's European vision? And what's the importance of these service contracts in terms of profitability for the company? Uh, You talk about contracts and profitability, but let me just start with what do we need to be good at? And I think, number one, on-time parts. If you don't have the parts for a turbine and it's down, you're in trouble. So if I can get a part to any one of our customers within 24 hours, and we should as the OEM, we have the relationships with suppliers, we know the kits, we have the manufacturing. And then the capability of upgrades. I use that as really up tower. What are the major upgrades that you want to do? And then a capability, I use this term fleet performance management. And so this is where you close the loop with the data You know, if you have 15,000 of the same units, there's a group that are the fleet leaders. What are you learning and how do you feed that back to your customers so they can maybe implement some modifications to enhance their reliability in life? Now, you also need, with those parts, somebody to actually put it in. Often, we will provide labor, but labor is very local. And so with a lot of our Gigawatt Club customers, they'll provide the labor and we'll provide those capabilities. For smaller developers, We can, but the reality is us managing 12 field techs in a remote part of the world isn't necessarily the most economical over the sustainable time. So as we go from 50,000 units to 500,000 units, we see us working with our customers and partners on the labor side and us bringing the technology of more the hardware and the software and the capability as opposed to a strategy that says, I want to go get these long-term contracts and go hire people in various countries. I see that as potentially dilutive for the economics of the industry going forward. And I think our customers in a more local context can solve that problem. I mean, there's a possible skills gap to meet. We talk about Europe, but getting labor in Texas or in Wyoming or in uh, Maine, in the States, same problem. So... But I think this is something for the industry, while we do grow it, how do we ensure the roles and responsibilities of the various players are aligned with their true capabilities so the industry is more competitive going forward? Vicar Bate, thank you very much indeed for talking to us for the Windpower podcast. Terrific. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for listening to the Wind Power podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode to explore the issues which are driving the wind industry. In the meantime, for the latest news, expert opinion and analysis, visit windpowermonthly.co.uk for daily updates or to sign up for one of our specialist bulletins delivered straight to your inbox.